You're listening to the Table Church Podcast. The Table is a community in Orville, California that aims to follow Jesus by doing what he did. Love God, love our neighbors, and serve those in need. Find us at thetablechurch.net, Instagram, or Facebook. And now for the message. Radical Women of the Bible, it is Women's History Month across the world. And so we're going to take a look at women in our own history, in our own scriptures, uh, for the month of March. And we did the Daughters of Zelophehad last week, and I hope you never forget that name for the rest of your life. I hope you have some hoglas in your life someday. Someday there will be a hogla that you know. And uh, yeah, I love that story. I hope it was meaningful for you. Today we are looking at Queen Esther. As always, if you have any questions, please feel free to send them, and I will definitely try to look at anything that comes in. I'm going to pull that out right now, so if there are any texts that come through, uh, we will see them, hopefully. That is going to be on the bottom of the screen if you have them. Please, anytime. I would rather this be a dialogue than a, a monologue. But as I said, we are going to talk about Queen Esther. In the story, it tells you that her Hebrew name is Hadassah. And I thought that was important to mention because that's part of who she is. It's part of her identity. But by and large, she goes by Esther, and she ultimately becomes Queen Esther by the end, or at least the middle of the story. And we're talking about for such a time as this. Here's really the theme of of the story that I want to pull out of this. How, How do we have significance in the world? How does our life make a difference? I've been chewing on these questions as I'm investing in all kinds of different things in my life. What is meaningful and what makes for a meaningful life? And how do we have significance in the world? And I think Esther's story can give us a few points to answer that question. But as always, background. Esther is a small book. It's part of the books uh, known as the writings in the Old Testament. Um, and in the middle of these writings, there's this little 10-chapter book called Esther. One of the incredible features of this book is that God is never mentioned in the book at all. And that's on purpose. The writer is trying to have you dig deeper into the story and ask Where's God in the midst of this? And what is God up to? And so you have to look a little deeper. And one of the things I love about that is because isn't that true about our own life? Rarely is there a narrator that says, and God told James to, we're having to peer and peek and perceive what God is up to in the midst of this. I will also tell you, this is about 100 years after the Babylonian exile. The Jews were taken into Babylon for about 70 years, and this is after that. A lot of Jews went back to Israel, but some of them stayed. And in the midst of some of them being stayed and being ended up in all these other empires, Esther takes place in the first Persian empire, not outside of Israel. There are four characters you really need to know about. This is Azarus. His name means king among men, which is really interesting because one of the law, the first law he makes in the book is that all men should be in charge of their wives. So he's the king of men. And he has, uh, he's thrown a party. It's six months long, 187 days to celebrate his greatness. Isn't that just like it? 
And the only rule at the party is have as much wine as you want. There's no end to the wine. Wine, And then in the last seven days, to celebrate his greatness, he says, I want you all to see how beautiful my queen is. Queen Vashti. I want her to come out, and I want everyone, all these political leaders, to see how beautiful she is. And she says, no, I'm not doing that. I don't get to be your trophy that you parade around in front of all your friends. Obviously livid. He counsels with his political leaders, what am I supposed to do? First of all, let's not tell any other women in the country that she did that because there'll be an uprising of women if, she, if they know the queen's talking back to the king. So law number one, men are in charge of their household. Absolutely, we're not, we're not putting up with this. But also, she's not going to be queen anymore. We need to figure out something else. Then the story switches over to this character named Mordecai. This is Uncle Mordecai. He is not Queen Esther's dad, but he raises her like a daughter. He is a family member. It says cousin. Sometimes it says uncle. And he raises one of the most beautiful people ever. I couldn't think of anyone except my own picture to put here. I forgot that was coming. You can tell I'm surprised too. Just kidding. He raises Esther. And what happens as you meet these characters is you learn that the king is sad that his beautiful wife Vashti is no longer queen. And so the king says, we need to have a beauty contest. Bring me all the unmarried beautiful women in the whole country, and I'm going to pick a new one to be queen. And so you learn that Mordecai has been raising Esther, and Esther's very beautiful. And so they decide she's going to be in, I mean, she has no choice. It's a law. She has to be part of this beauty contest. And so she enters and her uncle Mordecai says, uh, don't tell them you're, you're a Jew. Keep that concealed. That becomes important in the story, obviously. So she enters the contest and he picks her. She becomes his new bride. And then it takes a year to go through these beauty regimens, a year of beauty regimens. Can you, can you imagine? I got like Four minutes in the morning. A year of beauty regimens, but she's going to become the new queen. She won the beauty contest. Esther is the new queen of the Persian Empire of Azarus. During that year of beauty regimens, the king gets a right-hand man named Haman, and Haman is a scoundrel, a terrible human being. He's the bad guy in the story. He loves power. He loves being the king's right-hand man. He has the king make a rule that says, wherever I go, everyone should bow to me. And so he's out walking around, asking everyone to bow to him, and Mordecai, Uncle Mordecai, won't bow because Mordecai bows to no one except God alone. Haman says, not only do I hate Mordecai, but I'm going to extinguish all the Jews from the land. I'm going to kill all the Jews. In fact, I'm going to put bounties on their head. We're going to put money in the king's treasury for people who are willing to kill Jews. They can get money. We're going to exterminate the whole group of people. And so that's what he does. King, let me. There's a, he says, there's a people group who don't bow to you and your laws. They worship foreign gods, and they are trying to subvert your whole kingdom. Let me wipe them off the face of the earth. And the king says, okay, I don't know, whatever. Do whatever you want. And so Haman begins to enact this plan, and Haman rolls the dice. When are we going to kill all the Jews? 
like 11 months from now. That's the day of extermination. Mordecai, here's the plan. Mordecai, I mean, all the Jews hear the plan. Decrees go out from the king. Jew killing day is coming up. Bounties on their heads. Prepare to be annihilated Jews. Mordecai, a leader of the Jewish community, puts on sackcloth and ashes and begins to mourn in front of the king's gate. And he's not allowed to go in with his mourning clothes. And so he just mourns out in front of the king's gate. And Esther, now Queen Esther, says, what is Mordecai doing out there? And she sends some servants. She sends some clothes. She says, come in and talk to me. And he says, I, I can't. My heart's broken. We're all going to die. And so she says, what, what's going on? What's going on? And we're going to read today their correspondence back and forth and the way that they develop a plan uh, to figure out how to remedy this situation. Any questions or comments about the background? King, Vashti's gone. Esther, I don't know where she went. I don't think she got killed. She just disappears from the story. King, Esther, Haman, Mordecai. Great. Let's read Esther 4, 7 through 16. Hear now the good news of the Lord. Mordecai told Esther's servant everything that had happened to him. He spelled out the exact amount of silver that Haman promised to pay into the royal treasury. It was an exchange for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave Esther's servant a copy of the law made public in Susa concerning the Jews' destruction so that Esther's servant could show it to Esther and report it to her. Through Esther's servant, Mordecai ordered Esther to go to the king and seek his kindness and his help for her people. Esther's servant came back and told Esther what Mordecai said. In reply, Esther ordered the servant to tell Mordecai this. She said, there's just one problem. I would go to the king. There's just one problem. All the king's officials and the people in the provinces know that there's a single law in a case like this. Any man or any woman who comes into the king, comes to the king in the inner courtyard without being called is to be put to death. Only the person to whom the king holds out the gold scepter may live in my case, I haven't been called to come to the king for the past 30 days. So here's the problem. I would go talk to the king, but there's a rule that anybody who approaches the king without permission, killed. And as beautiful as I am, and as much as the king chose me, he hasn't called for me in 30 days. Hopefully you all can read between the lines. We're mostly adults in here. We've not had physical intimacy in 30 days. He doesn't even want to see my face. He hasn't even come to look at me. We haven't even made out in 30 days. I, I don't have an excuse to go see him. My life is in peril if I go. When they told Mordecai Esther's words, he had them respond to Esther saying, don't think for one minute that unlike all the other Jews, you'll come out of this alive simply because you are in the palace. In fact, if you don't speak up at this very important time, relief and rescue will appear for the Jews from another place, but you and your family will die. But who knows? Perhaps you have come into the royal family for 
just such a time as this. Mordecai, a man of faith, God will save us. I promise you. But if it's not, if it's not through you, it's going to come from somewhere else. But your safety is not guaranteed if you don't speak up right now. If you don't take up the call to go into the king. Esther sent back this word, my last slide of scripture, to Mordecai. Gather all the Jews and have them fast for three days. They aren't to eat or drink anything for three whole days, and I myself and my women servants will do the same. Then even though it is against the law, I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai left where he was, and he did exactly as Esther had ordered him. Questions, comments, insights? Send them to me. You know how we preach here. Head, heart, hands, something for us to know, something for us to feel, something for us to do. What is God, information that God wants us to have that, is trans, that leads to transformation or character? What does God want us to do with this story? Uh, what's coming to me this week when I'm talking about significance, when I'm talking about what makes for a meaningful life, the first point that comes to me is with God's eyes, we can see obstacles as opportunities. With God's eyes, we can see obstacles as opportunities. Mordecai ordered her to go to the king and seek his kindness to help her people. Perhaps you're in the royal family for just such a time as this. There is a huge problem facing this community. But you have an opportunity to use your position to change the situation. She can see this obstacle as an opportunity to do something great and to help her people. For such a time as this, time, 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 I'm, when I see this word time, I always want to tell you, and so forgive me if we go too far, but in, in Scripture, there's multiple different words for time. Two of the most prominent ones is chronos. We know that word, chronological, chronology. That's linear time, seconds ticking. Hours being stripped away from us in the middle of the night. How many times does daylight need to be saved? Salvation is but once from the Lord, once and for all. <laughs> Daylight's like me as a high schooler just getting saved at every youth conference. You know what I mean? It's just saved every year. Kairos is a different type of time. It has to do with opportunity. It has to do with the pregnancy of time. It has to do with meaningful. We, we have some words for this when we say something like, it's of the age, right? We know that doesn't mean like chronology. That means there's something happening bigger than calendar. But kairos, kairos time. Jesus uses this kind of time when he shows up on the scene in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15. He says, the time has come. He doesn't mean the calendar flipped to the right date. He means something's happening. The kingdom of God has broken into our history in a way unlike ever before. So when Mordecai says, maybe you have been in the royal palace for such a time as this, he doesn't mean check your calendar, sink your clocks. He means this, this is a meaningful, opportune moment. Kairos is an opportune moment. And mix that with Esther's situation where there's no God mentioned at all in Scripture. I mean, God just isn't mentioned. Uh, 
in, in here. There's an invitation with this kairos and God working behind the scenes that invites us to just look deeper and to think harder and more intentional about time, about opportunity. Esther is facing a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and we will have those too, I promise, but also we have daily opportunities to make the most of time, of kairos in the midst of this. When I think of Kairos and I think of time and the way that time can be pregnant with meaning, I always think of this, and forgive me when I tell this story multiple times, but Aaron and I were going to get married, and I was 19, I was new 19, and Aaron was 18, and I was like, getting married? Great. This is going to be wonderful. We're going to move in together. We're going to, like I just, in my head, it just was the perfect, I mean, no hesitancy. I was all in, wasn't worried about it at all. We did some premarital counseling with the pastors, and they're like, you sure y'all don't want to wait? And I was like, why would we wait? This makes perfect sense. Standing in the church, pastor comes up to me, and he goes, five-minute warning. And it felt like a bomb went off. You ever see movies where shell shocks hit and they're just like, and it's like, you can't hold me to if I don't remember. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) She's in Texas, so she's not here. Um, (laughs) But I just, time, that five minutes, that is Kairos. It was so meaningful. There was so much about to change in my life forever. That was the most important five minutes of my life. I had, it was like, am I sure? There's no going back. This is the threshold I'm about to walk through. My theology of marriage is that I'm in all the way till death. And I'm 19. There's a lot, there's a lot of years, hopefully, the Lord grant. This is my last moment. I'm not, there's no ring on my finger yet, right? It's a pregnant moment. Those five minutes. And then I remembered all the reasons that led me up there. How much I love and adore her. Of course it makes it. Now we're 17 years down the road. It's the best decision I ever made, second to following Jesus. But that five minutes... That's not the same five minutes of you waiting for your coffee to be done, right? That's a kairos moment. There are moments every day, once in a lifetime, you get to make the most of that time where God is urging you to seize opportunities, to seize the moment, to turn chronos into kairos, Maybe it's a kind word. Maybe it's investing in, in a youth or someone who's trying to grow closer to Jesus. Maybe it's talking to your neighbors about Jesus. Maybe it's serving somebody a cup of cold water. Whatever it is, there's a way in which Jesus is inviting us to seize moments and turn them into from ordinary chronology to kairos moments. And certainly to turn obstacles into opportunities to do something for Jesus in the midst of our days, months, years, weeks, lives, so that we can make a difference in the world around us. To do something significant for God on behalf of our neighbors. But why don't we do this? 
partly because we're busy, partly because we're comfortable, partly because it's hard, but I think there's other reasons. What does God want us to feel? What God wants us to feel is that in God's way, in God's way, significance requires sacrifice. To do something significant in the kingdom of God almost always requires sacrifice, and we almost always don't want to do it. Almost always. We see sacrifice in Esther's story. Even though it's against the law, I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. And sometimes it's hard for me to use a story about someone who's literally facing a life and death decision and try to talk to you all about how we need to make more sacrifice because her situation is so hard. But I think the way we apply this story is, is looking how significance requires sacrifice. It requires something for us. Every opportunity has a price tag. Every Kairos moment has a cost to it. And too many of us, myself included, I'm preaching to myself here, we count the cost and we let the cost count us out. We count the cost, the sacrifice, and we let it count us out. But it's not so with Esther. She counted the cost and she seized the opportunity. She said yes to the moment. She said yes to the sacrifice. And this leads her to be a woman of great significance. She gets her own book named after her in the Old Testament. Ten whole chapters. Because she counted the cost and seized the opportunity. This guy's name's William Borden. There's a, a book about him called Borden of Yale. That's not 2009. The subtitle of the book is The Life That Counts. And the reason I'm thinking about him is because... He had an extraordinary life in a lot of ways, a tragic life in a lot of ways. And the way his life ends is, makes us question the idea of significance. His dad was a millionaire, made millions of dollars in silver mines in Colorado. He grows up as a, as a child of privilege in uh, New York, Chicago, maybe. I should have learned that before. Gave his life to Christ. He graduates at 16 and his, I mean, high school at 16, bright kid, and his parents give him a chaperone trip around the world. A gap year. That sounds nice, huh? He goes around the world and early on just feels God talking to him about becoming a missionary. Writes home. I never thought I was going to be a missionary, but I feel God tugging on my heart for some of these people. His dad writes back, don't make any life decisions until you're 21. 19-year-old me getting married. <laughs> don't make any life decisions until you're 21. His friends write him back, don't throw away your life. Missionary work? You got a business to run. Gets to China, fills a heart for the Muslims in China. Keeps going. By the time he gets to Turkey, he's sure... He wants to be a missionary. By the time he gets to Europe, he's telling everyone he's going to be a missionary. Gets home, applies to be a missionary. They said, you need to go to school before we let you in. So he goes to Yale. And at Yale, he becomes a powerhouse leader. He starts organizing a, a small group where they're reading scripture and praying together. By the time he's a sophomore, 
A thousand out of the 1,300 kids at Yale are in one of his groups, in one of Borden's small groups. He had an incredible impact at Yale while he was there. Started a, a rescue mission, feeding thousands of people, housing thousands, of, uh, letting people find place to sleep thousands of times a year. Uh, funds it himself from his family's fortune. Before he goes off to seminary, uh, the story is, is that he renounces his family's wealth. Says he doesn't want anything to do with it. He's not running the family business. He doesn't want the money anymore. And he wrote in the back of his, his Bible two words. No reserves. I don't need the money. Trust in God's kingdom. Gets to Princeton. Gets his uh, seminary degree. Says he's an, a great student. Wonderful student. At this point, he knows he's going to China, and he wants to work with Muslims in the midst of China. Uh, it's a persecuted group then. It is now as well. And so he wants to go there and be a missionary. His dad says, even if you decided to come back to the company, I'm not going to let you have any part in it if you're going to renounce our family business. And so at the end of graduating from Princeton Seminary, he writes another two words in the back of his Bible. No retreat. Not going back. Uh, he wants to learn Arabic before he gets into China, and so he stops in Egypt, lives with a family to try to learn some Arabic before he heads off into China. And he's studying, and he's doing some incredible work there. He raises money and funds to get 800,000 Bibles for Egypt. And then he contracts meningitis. And then the treatments didn't work. And then the doctors told him he had two weeks left to live. And he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. No regrets. And he died, never making it to China. Every paper in the country wrote a story about William Borden of Yale, this millionaire son who renounced his wealth to go serve the kingdom of God in China. And all of them had some form of this question. Is it a life well lived or is it a tragedy? Does he have a life of significance or did he waste it? That question has kept his memory alive for the last hundred years. This is his tomb in Egypt. And on his tomb are the lines, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. That in the kingdom, his life has great significance. And he, everywhere he went, even though he never made it to China, as soon as he put his mind to work for God, everywhere he went, he worked for God in such a way that left a meaningful impact on those around him, but he never made it to where he was going. But apart from life, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. I think Esther's story should be having us ask the same kinds of questions. What is significance? What is meaningful? What makes for a life that is significant? The cost of doing something with God often counts us out. But Esther shows us that significance requires sacrifice. And God will help us see it through. What does God want us to do with this story?
I'm wrapping up. If you have questions or comments, please send them. What does God want us to do with this story? I think this, with God's help, we can rise to the occasion. We could take up the challenge. But you get a choice. Esther could have said no. Esther could have let the cost count her out. But she rose to the occasion, and I think with God's help, we can too. She says, even though it is against the law, I will go to the king, and if I perish, then I perish. And a part that we didn't read comes in the next chapter. It says three days later. Why three days later? Because they were fasting, remember? They were fasting. So after their fast, three days later, Esther put on her royal clothes, and she stood in the inner courtyard of the palace, facing the palace itself. At that moment, the king was inside, sitting on his royal throne and facing the palace doorway. And he killed her. No, he did not. She lives. <laughs> she lives. He invites her in. He raises the scepter to her and says, come in. And the rest of the story is that, well, we have a slide for that. That she says, hey, Haman's trying to kill all of my people. She discloses who she really is. She discloses Haman's plan. And the king is not having it. And you should read the rest of the story. How it plays out is wild. But after counting the cost, Esther used her position to influence the situation. For such as time as this, she seized the opportunity to take a historically significant action. That's the rest of the story. The king welcomes her in. She reveals the plan of Haman. And Haman is killed for trying to destroy all the Jews. She rose to the occasion. She counted the cost, and with God's help, she rose to the occasion. Last story I want to tell you is about St. Telemachus. If you've heard me tell the story, I'm sorry. One of my favorites. St. Telemachus was a, a monk. His job was to grow vegetables for his monk brothers, but he felt in his heart that he was supposed to go visit Rome. Rome was on the verge, I mean, on the verge of becoming Christian. This is the year 404. 415, the whole empire is declared to be Christian under the emperor Theodosius. So, but, and for a hundred years under Constantine, the empire had become more and more Christian. St. Telemachus, the monk, decided and felt a call in his heart to go to Rome. And so he goes to Rome because he wants to see what's going on in Rome, in the great empire that has maybe welcomed Jesus. He gets to Rome and there's a crowd of people. They are filing into the biggest building he'd ever seen, the Colosseum. And he gets swept up in the crowd and he goes in and he sees these men come out, these gladiators. And he sees them march out, right? And he sees them, the salute they do to the emperor, right? We who are about to die salute you. And they get ready to have their gladiatory battles where they're going to fight to the death. Telemachus not knowing anything. He's not from the region. He's just a lowly monk in the middle of somewhere in the east. Cannot believe what he's seeing. Not only are these human beings going to kill each other, thousands of people cheering them on. They love it. The king has, the emperor has sanctioned it. So he gets up and he yells, in the name of Christ, stop. No one's paying attention to him. So he runs to the wall. 
in the name of Christ, stop. No one pays any attention, so he jumps into the arena himself, runs to the gladiators and says, in the name of Christ, stop. Gladiators bat him around with these giant men with their shields. The people love it. Think it's part of the entertainment. But he won't stop getting in between them, begging them to stop. So finally the crowd grows tired and says, kill him. And so a gladiator takes out a sword, depending on which version you read, has the sword ran through him, and in his dying words, he says, in the name of Christ, I beg you, stop. And he's killed. And the ancient fathers tell us that the, the emperor, who's about to declare the whole empire Christian, was so taken with the monk's actions that he stopped the games. Then and forever. There were never any more gladiatorial battles after St. Telemachus entered the arena. The last, we know historically, the last gladiator battle was January 1st in the year 404 in the middle of the church's celebration of Christmas. And Telemachus's feast day, the day we celebrate him going to heaven, is January 1st, because the day he died, trying to stop the battle. No more battles after that. I think about that when I think about Esther's story, because Telemachus counted the cost, and he seized the opportunity, and it cost him everything. But he rose to the occasion to make an historical impact on the world. And so now I just ask, what about you? God is offering his eyes and his ways and his hands to help you seize the opportunity, to count the cost, to rise to the occasion. Will we let the cost count us out? Because it just is too much. Or embrace Esther's example that significance requires sacrifice and rise to the occasion. Questions? Comments? Jesus tells us to take up our crosses and deny ourselves for the gospel. Do we choose safety or sacrifice in the midst of chronology or kairos? If we're getting ready to leave and Go eat some delicious food and then just forget about this scripture story and just kind of move on our life to the next thing where we're just hoping someone will produce some con content that moves us. If that's the cycle that we're in, I'm begging you in the name of Christ, stop. And think about the ways in which God is working in your life to help you turn chronology into kairos moments for the sake of the kingdom. What does God want us to know? It says heart, but it means head. With God's eyes, we can see obstacles as opportunities. And with God's ways, with God's example, with Esther's example, we know that kingdom significance requires sacrifice. And lastly, with our hands, what does God want us to do? But know that with God's help, we can rise to the occasion. I'm done. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for this day, for this story 
for Esther's example, for Mordecai and his faith. Would you help us to chew on their story in such a way that it becomes part of of us, that we can apply it, that we can think about it, that we can use your word in a way that helps transform and shape us. Help us to continue to hold these women up, these daughters of Zelophehad and Queen Esther and their examples, the ways they move in the world to honor you, to serve your people. May we hold them up as examples for us to aspire to. And as we come now to a time of communion, Father, would you meet us here as you promised you would, in the bread and in the cup? And would it be a time of spiritual nourishment, spiritual energy, so that we can continue to follow you all the days of our life? And Table Church, Will you help me finish this prayer by saying the Lord's Prayer with me? Saying, Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.